Good, good day to you, brothers, sisters, friends, and new faces. Welcome to Current Events and Christian Expectations. And today we're going to talk about part two of lying. And in this session, we'll see how lying is inherent from the beginning and will continue its due course and volume until that great climax at the end of time. Our first scripture will be 1 John 5:19, And as usual, we'll have several other scriptures that we'll reference and read today. And we'll put those in the overview. So with the commonality of lies, let's get ready to dig right in. But first, a little disclaimer. Yes, uh, life uh, happens even to people like us. So we got delayed a couple of weeks with our podcast. And because of that, tonight's podcast will be longer than usual. So we beg the indulgence of our gracious listening audience. <laughs> Just slightly over 30 minutes. Yes. <laughs> Well, the Christian expectation, well, let's go back. The current event is lies. There's so many lies going on in today's world, certainly in this country we live in, of America. And the lies are really, can be summed up as the lie of Satan, which is always, the lie is about trying to pull people away from belief in the God who is the creator and redeemer of mankind, slandering him and pointing out that his good creation is not good. And, of course, the source of all this lying is Satan. The Christian expectation is this, that this lie of Satan will go on. It began in Eden. It will go on to the end. Currently, he lies to destroy God's good creation of marriage and family by way of the church. When all else fails, he lies and gets his own government to rid the earth of Christians. Understand this, really. Understand this. The world is already his. Randy will read 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Yes, the whole world lies, present tense. That's been going on for 2,000 years since John said that. Lies in the power of the evil one, the whole world. The world is his. The church is not that's why he targets and focuses primarily on the church. In Revelation chapter 12, when uh, Satan is cast out of heaven, losing the war with uh, Michael and his angels, and the war is lost because Christ has ascended and been enthroned, the narrator of that passage says, he was thrown down, the dragon, that old serpent, Satan, who deceives the whole world. Notice he's not trying, he's not working at it, he deceives, Actively. present tense, continuing, it's a fact. And so, in the fullness of time, everything outside of Christ will fall under the judgment of God, which will come as a grand climax. We'll have that as one of our patterns of truth in this. And that'll be in accordance with God's timing. Satan's work is all based in lies and reaches the climax, as Paul describes it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Yes, and uh, verse 8 before that describes the return of Jesus who by the breath of his mouth destroys mm. this man of sin. Satan's primary target is the marriage and family, and he works on that to destroy it through the church, which has the uh, 
added effect for him of obviously destroying the church. This all begins with the infiltration of the apostles. Jesus has chosen 12. Let's take a look at this. First, understand, at the end of um, that first temptations of Christ, they ended with the big three. Luke chapter 4 describes that and says, when Jesus had bested him in those temptations, Satan left until there came about an opportune time. Mm. Satan knows when there are good times to strike with his lies and what are the best times to do that. Here are some opportune times which show us clearly how he gets into the apostolic circle, up close and personal. This is how Satan works. Matthew 16, 23, before Randy reads that, Jesus has um, gotten the confession from Peter that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of the living God, he's the Messiah. And then Jesus tells them, well, this means I must go and die on the cross. Then Peter says in Matthew 16, 23, But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Yes, Peter didn't want Jesus to go to the cross. Notice how Jesus says this is an, a word of Satan. Satan has actually gotten into the inner circle mm. and has managed to get Peter, who just confessed a few minutes before the great confession, to now turn around and say just the opposite. That is extraordinary. Here's a passage as well. Let's look at this one from Luke 22, verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. This is during the time of the Passover when Jesus performs his um, new Passover, what we call the Lord's Supper. And notice again, Satan enters into him. Judas is fully compliant with this. He has, he has bought the deception that Satan has given him. Then in John 13, verse 2, we have this. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Exactly. There again can, confirms what Luke says. And then as we go down to verse 27. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you, you are going to do, do quickly. Yes. Notice here with deception, you believe it and then you act on it. Mm. You believe it. That's why the deception is uh, so important to Satan, because once you believe that, you will act upon it. The last temptation that came to Jesus was actually on the cross itself. Listen to the cries of these leaders in Matthew 27, verses 39 through 44. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and re rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So just as Satan had managed to get the tongue of Peter and say these things to discourage Jesus from the cross, even while on the cross, Satan is still doing that, mm. working through the mouths of these people as well. But there is the victory of the cross, absolutely. Two different ways of looking at it. First, in anticipation, Jesus says this in John 12, verses 31 through 33. Now is the judgment of this world. 
now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Satan will lose by way of the cross. Mm. The victory was won at the cross. Paul explains it this way in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Triumphing over them in him or in it, meaning the cross, depending on your translation. The point is, there was warfare at the cross and the principalities and powers, those entities of darkness, which were against Christ and his mission, they were defeated by Jesus' substitution, his paying the penalty for our sins on the cross. Satan's cast out. That's why he lost the war in heaven in the book of Revelation. And he has been defeated with all of his horde, as Paul explains there in Colossians 2. Listen to these quotes. Here's first Augustine, always good for a quote. A lie consists in speaking a falsehood with the intention of deceiving. Now, that's pretty straightforward. But here's a Puritan guy, John Ruskin, from a few hundred years ago. Listen to what he says. Very important. The essence of lying is in deception, not in the words. Mm. So <laughs> remember that. Here's, a, here's an example of that from Luke 22, verses 47 through 48. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Betray the Son of Man with a kiss. That was the action. As if all things are fine between us. And Jesus, of course, knew it was not so. Yeah, the art of deception is not just with words. It's with the intent. That's what makes it so devilish. The posture of heart. Yes. Satan began his war against Christ and his people at Christmas time. And usually you don't hear about these Christmas stories at Christmas time because they're sort of a downer. (laughs) But nonetheless, they're a little bloody. This is yeah. an opportune time for Satan to strike. Listen to this passage, familiar to I'm sure a lot of you, from Matthew 2, the first seven verses. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them, what time the star had appeared. Yes, um, and Herod goes on to make words as if he wants to go and worship him and give praise and glory. Of course, that's all deception. As we'll see, clearly Satan is behind this. Let's drop down to verses 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years older under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. 
She refused to be comforted because they were no more. Satan and his demonic rush to kill the baby uh, doesn't worry about collateral damage. Mm. Doesn't worry about it at all. The wise men got a dream from God. They knew that Satan was deceiving them through Herod. They went back another way. Herod retaliated, trying to kill everybody in hopes of getting the one baby and the mass murder. Now, this is the Christmas story. Behind the scenes, Satan has been working. This is revealed to us, clearly enough, in a book called Revelation. Listen to these first five verses of chapter 12 of Revelation. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Yes, a quote there from Psalms chapter 2, that the coming Messiah, the son of David, would rule all nations with an iron scepter. And notice Satan uh, presented to us as a dragon, mythical beast that everyone would fear, ready to swallow up the baby right at birth. Mm. And it doesn't happen. God comes in, and before Satan knows it, um, Jesus has been crucified, he's ascended, he's been enthroned in heaven. What is the response of uh, Satan to this? Here we drop down to verses 7 through 9. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Yes, and what the book of Revelation says a little later on is that he knows his time is short. Right, he is a furious loser, a sore loser, (laughs) a wrathful loser. Then, since he knows his time is short, that means the longer this short time goes as we approach the end, the more furious and the more lying and the more audacious it's going to get. And I think in current events we're seeing some of that moving that direction. And this continues, of course, throughout the church age until that great climax with the return of Jesus. He wants to deceive Christians, get them to depart from the faith, meaning what we believe about Jesus and God, uh, through uh, demonic deception. Listen to this passage from 1 Timothy Chapter 4, the first five verses. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Though the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbade marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. 
The thing to remember from this, and we could go on for half an hour, but we won't, <laughs> is that Satan attacks the origin of the human race, procreation, and he attacks what sustains the human race, food. The point is, those good things of God's creation, human beings, and the way in which God sustains them, Satan attacks and gets deception involved to fool people so they will not procreate and become to think food is something bad for them. Now, that was back in Paul's day. If we move this ahead and say, how has this been accelerated? Now it's abortion mm -hmm. instead of worrying about who gets married. And instead of dealing with the food, he still deals with the mouth, and it's all about drugs. That's has been around for some centuries, but in the 20th century into this century, it has really accelerated. Yeah. So are we looking at a climax of these later times? And we'll be coming to that. Right now, remember, he infiltrated the apostolic circle, and he's still infiltrating the church, and here are some great examples of that. First of all, right in the early church when things were great, the power of the Holy Spirit, Satan was right there. Acts chapter 5, first six verses. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Yes, and as many of you know, later his wife comes in and the same thing happens to uh, her. Yeah. That would put great fear in anybody. But know what Peter says, why has Satan, why have you allowed this to happen? Satan, to fill your heart. Mm -hmm. So there, again, right in the middle of the dynamic movements of the early church, Satan is doing his work. Later, Paul tells the elders at the church at Ephesus that a little later on, they're going to have issues as well. Let's go to Acts chapter 20, verses 26 through 30. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Of course, all of this is the work of Satan. And of course, if you're the elder, one of the elders at Ephesus, that's something you don't want to hear. But it is the truth. It was going on then. It's been going on for 2,000 years. Satan is relentless. There's one more from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is uh, chastising the church at Corinth because they have listened through false apostles and prophets or whatever, these lies of Satan. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. 
But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunnings, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. There you go. And just as Satan was active in the Garden of Eden with God's people there, Adam and Eve, he continues in the church, and that is his primary theater of work, the Church of Jesus, to destroy uh, marriages, to destroy family, and therefore churches fall apart. We do not have time, but just to let you know, there are seven churches in the book of Revelation that Jesus has John write letters to, and five times Satan or the devil comes up in those seven letters. And of course, in the others where he's not mentioned, clearly he is still active in doing things. Here's a quote from Sun Tzu. Those of us who love military history will know who he is. He wrote the famous book, The Art of War, which is still, I believe, taught in many places of, uh, where they have um, military schools. All warfare is based on deception. Mm -hmm. Then listen to this. When we are near, we must make the enemy believe we are far away. That is Satan's strategy. Mm -hmm. People do not believe in the devil. Whatever he is, he's far away. He's not, he's not near enough to bother us. There is no such thing, etc. Fairy tales. People are unaware then of the lie until it's too late. So what should we Christians currently, current events, focus on? Should we focus on getting the government straightened out? No, because as we will see, he's got the government. He's got the world. He's the seer of the whole world. We must concentrate on what is ours, which is the church of Jesus given to us as stewardship. We've got to do that. The 20th century, give you an idea when I say he's got the governments. This is what I mean about building toward a climax. In the 20th century alone, uh, 170 million people were killed by anti-Christian governments, starting with the old Soviet Union, communist China, and there's at least six more we could go into. And when I say 170 million, I don't mean the wars, like World War I, World War II, where you have great casualties, obviously. These statistics are about people who are just taken out and shot, murdered, disappeared in the night or whatever when these regimes came to power. They just wanted to get rid of especially the Christians. And if you want that information, some of this comes from uh, Rudolf Rommel from the University of Hawaii and his uh, essay, Power Kills, good title. <laughs> and then of course there's the Black Book of Communism of all places printed by Harvard Press. 1999, which again details, specifically with documentation, the horrors of the 20th century of governments which became totalitarian, satanic, and anti-Christian. Critics of Christianity often say, well, during the Middle Ages and early on churches, they killed people because they thought they were heretics. Whatever those numbers are, and it's hard to get them, some people say 50,000, some maybe as many as 100,000, pales to 170 million. Mm. Um, the errors and sins of the church are well known. So keep that in mind. It's a waste of time to deal with trying to change the government in these matters. What we need is to, if we're Christians, is to watch our churches. So let's take a look at these last days. What does that phrase mean? We need to understand that first. Here's a passage from Hebrews chapter 1, first three verses. 
Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So in these last days, which is normally understood, and I think it's correct, from the first coming of Jesus until these days are terminated by the second coming. These are the last days. The question is, of course, are the last days going to have their last days? Mm -hmm. And I would say yes, based as we shall see on the pattern of truth in the Bible, that God lets things come to a fullness or a climax, and then he acts. But nonetheless, here's another passage that deals with that to show you that even in Paul's time, they were in the last days. 2 Timothy chapter 3, first five verses. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedience to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Notice Paul says to Timothy, after he says these last, about the last days, avoid such people. Mm. So that means they were themselves in the last days. But he ends on this phrase, having the form of godliness but denying the power thereof. That has been increasing through the 20th century, into this century. And you don't have to look in churches for this. There are people in the secular world who have their own form of godliness, denying any power of God. Yeah, we've seen that. Yeah. So... How do we know things are then are really going to come to a climax? Listen to this passage from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Notice, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves, especially as you see the day drawing near. Now, in some sense, it had to be true in their lifetime, but it is progressive. And as we look at the current events, we can say, I think honestly, and no one knows the time, but we can say honestly, we see that day approaching even more now than we did 100 years ago. Just to give you some examples, God always acts in judgment and salvation uh, when the fullness of time comes, either with the corruption of a certain place or people, and we're looking at eventually the world, uh, and a time to deliver his people. For example, the flood, Genesis 6, when the world is so filled with violence, God says, enough. A flood comes and takes away the people of that age. In the Tower of Babel, God is depicted as saying, you know, I'm looking at this, what is this project, and boy, nothing will be denied them. They'll be able to do whatever they want. So he comes down to confuse their tongues at that time. Sodom and Gomorrah. He's also pictured as saying, as the cry has reached me in heaven, it's gotten to a fever pitch down in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's reached a fullness of corruption. And so he goes down to deal with that. In Genesis chapter 15, when he tells Abraham, you're going to have descendants, and for 400 years they're going to be in a land that's not theirs, but after that I'll bring them back. But they're not coming back until those hundreds of years have passed because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. 
So you have, again, this God lets things come to a fullness. And, of course, when we get finally to um, Jerusalem of Jesus' day, that obviously is the case as well, as we'll see here in just a minute. There's an interesting passage uh, in 2 Kings, but Jeremiah 52, 3 repeats it. Uh, he says the following. This is the English Standard Version. The Lord's anger came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. It mm. came to the point. Uh, the study on that is the Hebrew word. It means they came as, it came as far as or even to, meaning it came to its fullness to a place where God finally had to act. So we're looking toward the climax of things. And this happened again to Israel during the lifetime of Jesus right before his crucifixion. Listen to this passage from Matthew 23, verses 29 through 36. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute them from town to town, so that on you may come the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel, the blood of Zechariah, the son of Bacariah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. A generation that refused Christ. He said it's going to come to a fullness, starting back from Abel and all that rolling up to a grand climax in the destruction of Jerusalem, which we know historically happened in 70 AD by the Romans. So there you see another example where God brings things to a climax, a fullness, and a conclusion. We also know, and this brings us back to the idea of the lie, the Antichrist, and all that, that there's a climax to come. Listen to these verses from 1 John chapter 2, 18 through 19. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Yes, you've heard, he says, that the Antichrist is coming. A common teaching in the church then and the church of the next two, three centuries. The church fathers talk about this as well. The point is that the presence of many Antichrists, people who denied the person of Jesus in his incarnation, were a prediction of a final Antichrist to come. Mm -hmm. So you're moving toward a climax. You're moving toward a, a, a fullness of something. Here's another one from the same 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Right, and this will be true of the final Antichrist as he comes to pass. It is a matter of truth versus lie, truth and error. Again, from 1 John, here's how he puts it in chapter 4, the first six verses. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know that the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is from God. 
and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Spirit of truth and spirit of error. These false prophets have their own word, not from God. And of course, they're energized by Satan. And John says the world listens to them. But he says the world should listen to us, meaning the apostolic testimony, which he begins in 1 John about his experience with being with Jesus, the Christ. And so there's the truth and there's error. It was rampant in John's day, and it's going to build to a climax toward the end. Lies are always a preparation in the course of human history for the big lie to come. Whether you look at the rise of Hitler, who lied about a lot of things, Mm -hmm. and then he was the final big lie himself. Same thing with other dictators and totalitarian governments of the 20th century. Always first the deception, then follows the destruction. Just as in John 8, Jesus said, Satan is a liar from the beginning and a murderer. First the deception, then the bloodshed. Here's an example of that. Revelation is a difficult book, complex, but these verses are pretty clear. I'll show you again what I'm talking about when I say a climax of the age. Revelation 13, verses 4 through 7. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. And it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. As this beast, and we do not have time to go into it, is a picture of the Antichrist. Some say it's a personal. Uh, my own preference is it's a government, an organization of some kind, because mm-hmm. he's described as having the characteristics of the four great kingdoms of history that we find in the book of Daniel. But we do not have time to go into all of that. Point is, there is this beast who has absolute power and authority, especially aimed at Christians. It's worldwide and it's horrific. We come down to verses 11 through 14, and he has help, propagandist. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the, by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Now what this all means, in simple terms, is he's a propagandist, this prophet. He's energized by Satan. He probably has a propaganda ministry, as simply as they had with, the, uh, say, the Nazis in World War II. And notice the deception is first with the eyes, 
we did a podcast uh, some months ago on the problem of images in mm. current events and what the Bible teaches about images. And then, of course, once the eyes are deceived, the ears will believe in anything they hear. We're going to look at this beast and the prophet in just a moment again to show you that they will be the final form of Satan's great lie, but will be ended by Jesus. Right now, listen to this quote from Robert Greene. He's written a lot of books uh, and studies on strategy, power, and seduction. Robert Greene, he says this, Deception is a developed art of civilization and the most potent weapon in the game of power. Mm. And we see this with Satan. There's a reference to this beast that has a mortal wound that was healed. Well, that's deception. He has a mortal wound. It was healed as far as the world saw it. This is the, the ingenious work of, of Revelation. But remember, he's going to be tossed out at the cross. He was defeated at the cross. Mm-hmm. In Genesis chapter 3, right after the great sin of Adam and Eve, God says this to the serpent, whom we as Christians know and identify as Satan, you know, there's going to be this seed of the woman, and he will come along, and you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. That happened at the cross. He's already lost. He's had a mortal wound. It's sort of Revelation's way of saying, people, world, don't you get this? He's already lost. He's received the mortal wound. He cannot win this. That is Satan. But Satan has deception. He has power and propaganda. And toward the end, this grand climax, which we will see. But first, before we get to that, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. Listen to what one of the primary purposes of Jesus was coming to earth. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Exactly. It began at the cross. It continues at the climax of his return. By the way, that return, Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus returns in the great climax finally of the book of Revelation, you know, you have the seals first, and they have a certain progression. Then you go to the trumpets, and they have a greater, reaching toward a greater climax. And finally the bowls come. And with that, the book of Revelation says, with that, the wrath of God is ended. And upon that climax, Jesus returns. Of course, there's a lot more, but for our purposes tonight, that's the point. Revelation 19, verse 20. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped its image. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. There you go. The beast and the false prophet, the entities that they are, they are thrown into the lake of fire by the providence of God when Jesus returns in that picture of Revelation when he returns on the great white horse. And of course, the next chapter deals with what is commonly referred to as the millennium, the kingdom age of Jesus. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as is in heaven. Fulfillment of that. And so, that's the end at that time of Satan. He's confined. We see this in chapter 20. And the earth has a new birth of freedom, which you can read about in 2 Peter chapter 3, Romans chapter 8 from verse 18 on, and etc., I would point out the lake of fire is mentioned twice, Revelation 20 and then Revelation 21, and talks about the people who are there. I make a point, the last ones mentioned in both groups are liars, Mm. as it builds toward a climax, explaining who's in the lake of fire. So let us love the truth. As Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, Satan will have his man, he'll deceive them with, again, the 
the miracles that supposedly he does, but Jesus at the second coming, his breath, he will destroy him. And these others will perish because they did not love the truth. Mm. We've got to love the truth. Where is this going? Next podcast, we're going to look at the phenomena of the gay movement, which is ongoing in the 20th, came to the fore, really, to power in the 20th century, but now is dwarfed into the LGBTQAI+, and even lately, I think there were five other letters added, Mm -hmm. which means things are rushing toward a crazy climax in this. Mm -hmm. Is this the return of Jesus, or is this the judgment of America? I cannot tell you. I don't know. If I get information, I'd be glad to share it. (laughs) All I'm saying is, clearly, these things, these lies move to a climax, and that's followed usually by the judgment of God. So be with us next time. Well, thanks, Jim. You've given us a lot to think about, and I'm sure that there are questions or comments about it. And we'd love to hear those questions and comments from you. So please send your questions and comments to eventsandexpectations at gmail.com. That's the word events, the word and, and the word expectations at gmail.com. We'll use your question or comment on air where possible, and we'll always answer you. This has been Current Events and Christian Expectations. And until next time, keep looking up.